0: So, um, funny story. Brother David Harvey, it's good to see you. (laughs) The reason that's a funny story is David was supposed to be up here preaching to you all today. And we found out last night that his flight would be canceled and that he wouldn't make it in time for service to start. And so, uh, last night, I was sitting in my office stressing out and my wife said to me, it's just a book report, just. (laughs) She said, don't don't try to church it up. Um, But I I did what any good preacher would do in this situation um, and plagiarized the whole thing. And so lower your expectations today. You could find a better version of this sermon somewhere on the internet. Um, Don't look too hard, but it's out there, trust me. We're gonna start today by uh, going to our Old Testament text. This is out of Isaiah 58. Shout for all you are worth. That's how you know this isn't addressed to sanctuary. (laughs) Raise your voice like a trumpet. Proclaim their faults to my people, their sins to the house of Jacob. So here, there's some grievances about to be aired. But listen to what the grievances are. Listen to what the sins of the house of Jacob are they seek me day after day. They long to know my ways, delight to know my ways. Not too bad so far. Like a nation that wants to act with integrity and not ignore the law of its God. They ask me for laws that are just. They long for God to draw near. So far, these grievances aren't too bad. All things that we actually would hope to embody as the people of God, delighting in God's way, asking God for just laws. And then they ask me, why should we fast? This is the people of God asking God, why should we fast if you never see it? Why do penance if you never notice? Look, you do business on your fast days, God says to them. You, you are serving your own interests. You oppress all your workmen. Look, you quarrel and squabble when you fast and strike the poor man with your fist. Fasting like yours today will never make your voice heard on high. Is that the sort of fast that pleases me? A truly penitential day for men, hanging your head like a reed, lying down on sackcloth and ashes. Is that what you call fasting? a day acceptable to Yahweh. Is not this the sort of fast that pleases me? It is the Lord Yahweh who speaks, to break the unjust fetters and undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke, to share your bread with the hungry and shelter the homeless poor, to clothe the man you see to be naked and not turn from your own kin, Then will your light shine like the dawn and your wound be quickly healed over. Your integrity will go before you and the glory of Yahweh behind you. Cry and Yahweh will answer. Call and he will say, I am here. If you do away with the yoke, the clenched fist, the wicked word, if you give your bread to the hungry and relief to the oppressed, Your light will rise in the darkness and your shadows become like noon. Yahweh will always guide you, giving you relief in desert places, satisfy your needs in parched places. He will give strength to your bones and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never run dry. You will rebuild the ancient ruins, build up on the old foundations. You will be called the breach mender. Restorer of ruined houses. God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what it is you are doing and saying among us this morning. Amen. If you've been in church long, you've heard this text before. You know this is a text that we refer to when we talk about fasting, what kind of fasting is pleasing to God. We're getting ready to head into a season of Lent, the great fast. And one of the temptations we face as we engage a text like this, a text on fasting, is the temptation to spiritualize the text, we usually read this like two kinds of fasting that are happening here. There's the religious kind of fasting, this, this fasting that's going through the motions. And then there's this spiritual kind of fasting, this fasting that's done with a heart for God and a heart for others. And we think that if, if we fast with a heart for God, God will free us from oppression. God will cause us to prosper. God will break the yoke. But this is exactly what the prophet Is critiquing that we use our fasting in order to get something from God or get God to do something for us this is again the critique of the prophet that their desire for God to save them is exactly what is getting them into trouble they delight to know God they delight to draw near to him they're people of prayer they are the people of God and they love being the people of God and says the prophet that's the problem Because they're desiring God in a way that actually hardens their hearts to their neighbor. Remember what the text says, you do business on your fast days. You strike the poor man with your fist in the middle of your fasting. This is hard for us to hear. For those of us that grew up in churches that focused on loving God, we suggested to people that if you just love God, everything else in your life will fall into place. And it makes it hard to listen to this kind of prophetic critique because the answer to everything we've been told is just desire God more and God will straighten everything out. But here again, the heart of God, the heart for God is the problem because it's a heart that aligns itself with its own interests It's the heart that seeks God and it seeks to please God, but it seeks those things in order to gain something, in order to make God and their fasting useful to them. It's a heart for God after their own image instead of for a God who has made them in his. In Greek, now you know I'm plagiarizing. (laughs) There's a, a word for medicine that's also the same word for poison. There are a number of languages that work like this, but Greek is one of them, that the word for medicine is the very same word for poison. We get our word pharmacy from this. And there's a way that we should think about all of our Christian life, all of our spirituality, as having this kind of double-edged reality to it, that we The way we practice, the way we worship, the way we live our lives can be medicine, but it can also be poison. There's a kind of prayer that is death, but there's also a kind of prayer that brings life. There's a kind of worship that is poison and there's a kind of worship that is life-giving. There's a kind of fasting that will kill your heart and a kind of fasting that can actually shock your heart back to life in its love for God. There's a kind of religion that leads to nothing but self-righteousness and a kind that leads to the righteousness of God. And here's the test. This is the litmus. If it's genuinely the medicine of God and not poison, it will sensitize you to your neighbor. It makes you more aware of the needs of those around you, not less aware. It brings you into contact with the suffering of the world. It opens you up to it. So how do we do that? How do we sort that out? How do we know that we're living as people who bring the life of God to bear in the world, that healing and the peace of God and not the poison? It turns out that our life needs rhythm in order to live like that. It needs a rhythm of being a people who are gathered in as the people of God, transformed by the presence of God in Christ receiving that mystery into our own bodies which is what we do week after week after week as we come to the table and then we send ourselves back out into the world as the body of Christ we are gathered in in order to be sent back out we come and receive food for the journey so that we can go and fill the hungry with good things We come to the house of the Lord to receive peace so we can go and be peacemakers in the world. We come to have our wounds healed so that we can go and mend the wounds of others. This is the rhythm that animates the Christian life. Jürgen Moltmann, German theologian, he has this this beautiful image of the breathing of the body of Christ. He says there is the inhale that gathers us into the body of Christ where we are drawn in by the spirit and brought near to the heart of God. And then there's the exhale of God that sends us out, bearing the sweetness of God's presence into the world. Some theologians have talked about this as the need for two conversions. A conversion from the brokenness of the world to God and then the conversion from God back into the world, back to my neighbor. And that these conversions, they don't just happen once in our lives, but it's over and over and over again. We are needing to be converted from the brokenness of the world to God, and then from God back to the brokenness of our world and to our neighbor, back to the poor. This is where the prophet is clear that if you see someone who is hungry, feed them. If you see someone who is naked, clothe them. This is at the heart of all the teaching of Christian faith, that the poor is not just one economic class. The poor is whoever is nearest me in need. Whoever is near to me and has a need, that person is poor. Whatever their class, whatever their social standing, whatever their bank account statement says, and your job and mine is to see it and then to see to it. God is the God who sees and sees to what he sees. He attends to what he gives his attention to. And we're called to do the same. Father Chris, I think you were the first one to share this story with me of St. Chrysostom, who's an early bishop, 4th century and he makes this move from Antioch to Constant Constant oh, I can never say this word. Constantinople. Everyone. Constantinople. And he's been given the, the, the privileged position in the church to be the bishop of this city. And when he gets there, what he experiences a lot of a lot of wealthy, a lot of rich, powerful Christians who have cut themselves off from the needs of the poor. And one of his first acts as bishop was to establish leper colonies in the communities where these rich Christians lived. Now think about that. The bishop essentially establishing like shanty towns in our gated communities. What would that do to us? What kind of a holy disruption would that bring to us? And then what he says to these people in his preaching over and over again is that if you cannot see Christ in the poor, you cannot see Christ at all. If you can walk past that leper in your neighborhood to get to church, it's not God that you're going to find here. It's some reflection of your own heart. It's the God that you've made in your own image and not the one who has created you in his. And what we have to figure out is how to see the world the way that God sees the world. This is the heart of Christian life. We come to church, we pray, we read the scriptures, we worship in order to get close to God so that we can see God. And what God shows us is our neighbor. I have a couple images that I want to show you. I don't know. Did you guys get those thumbs up? Yes. Nice. Fritz Eichenberg, he is a, f- a famous artist and illustrator. You've inevitably seen some of his work, even if you didn't know that it was his. He uh, he worked in illustrated classics like um, Alice in Wonderland. He, he did The Grand Inquisitor. And one day he's in New York City and he stumbles into this encounter with Dorothy Day and her Catholic worker ministry, and they strike up a friendship. And eventually she asks him to contribute to her magazine. And this is one of the images, one of the first ones that he provided to her. It's called Christ of the bread lines and you can see Christ in the midst of these people who are they're standing they're waiting for bread and notice first the way in which Christ is present among them and his presence is illuminating all of them that they're all being illumined by the glory of Christ's halo and the only light that's in this whole image is the light of Christ. His light is illuminating everyone around him. But they seem to be completely unaware of him. They don't know he's there. And in not knowing that he's there, they also remain in the bread line. Now think of the irony of this, of this image, that the bread of life is there in the bread line. His light is illuminating their lives, but they don't know that he's there. And it turns out him being there doesn't seem to change their circumstances at all. They're still cold, they're still hungry, their hands are still open waiting for bread, waiting to be fed. This is something of what we have to learn about how God works in the world. Sometimes bread is broken and God feeds the 5,000, but other times he is present to the hungry and they just remain hungry. Most of the time, God is present there, and yet their circumstances don't change. It turns out God being present doesn't just set everything to rights. Remember in Matthew 25, the image of the sheep and the goats. To the sheep, God says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. Sick and you visited me. In prison and you came to see me. And then he says to the goats, I was all of those things, but you did nothing. Notice the first three things that Jesus lists. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. These three things are problems that can get addressed and they can get fixed. But the last two, they're not things that can get fixed or remedied, not easily. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. There are just some things in the world that we are not going to fix. But we still have to be present. There are some problems that we will be caring for endlessly. Remember, the poor you will have with you always. We are not called to cure every illness. We're called to care, to be present, patiently present in a way that recognizes Jesus is there, and it's in his light that we can see our neighbors at all. Another image I want to show you, this is by an individual named David Jones. He's a poet, artist. He's basically Father Chris. This is called Christ sending forth his disciples And notice here in this image the disciples are moving in a direction that actually takes them away from Christ Christ is giving them the sign of blessing the tree of life is behind Jesus and the disciples are being sent out into the world and if you remember the Christ of the breadlines image we saw just a moment ago it's almost as if these two pieces almost like they were made for each other It's almost as if they've turned their face and now they're headed toward Christ standing in the bread line. Notice the heaviness that's on the apostles here. They're not smiling. They're not not praising. They're not celebrating, excited to be sent out into the world. There's a heaviness. They're weighed down with this sentness. They've turned their backs on Jesus but only so that they can face the same needs of the world that Jesus is facing. This is at the heart of this rhythm we're talking about, that there is a way that we move toward the risen Jesus. And then if we really encounter him, we turn our backs to him to face the needs of our neighbor and carry that same blessing out into the world. Remember Isaiah 58, your integrity will go before you and the glory of Yahweh behind you. Why is God's glory behind us? Because it's the glory of the risen Christ that animates our life toward our neighbor. And how does that passage in Isaiah 58 end? It says, cry and Yahweh will answer. Call and he will say, I am here. I am here to be sure if in this moment as the disciples are being sent out under that that weight of that calling and the weariness of that calling, if there was ever any doubt, is Christ with us? He's right there saying, I'm with you. We're preparing ourselves to head into the season of Lent in just a couple of weeks. And this is the wisdom of the prophet. All of our fasting is fasting from our own interests so that we can taste the suffering of those in need. We stop indulging our own appetites in order to get an appetite for the needs of the people around us. If you're going to fast, this is not my quote, this is part of my plagiarism. (laughs) It's like a church father, so don't worry about it. He says, if you're going to fast and be grouchy, don't fast at all. And if you're going to fast from food and devour your neighbor, it's better not to fast at all. The key is to fast in a way that gives us an appetite for what God wants and allows us to taste the suffering of our neighbors. But fasting in that way won't be realized by just not eating Fasting in that way requires attention. Willie James Jenning, he says that we have essentially adopted what he calls a colonial approach to the gospel. Having found Jesus, we've accepted our understanding of who Jesus is and then sought to take our understanding of Jesus to whomever we want, whenever we want. And it's usually to people that are convenient in places that are convenient, at times that are convenient. But he says this colonial approach to the gospel rarely causes us to ask questions. It rarely causes us to pause and to see what it is that's needed. Rarely have we listened in our evangelism. Jennings points out that God himself was revealed to us. This is the season of Epiphany. God was revealed to us as a listening and a learning God. If we are going to fast, if we are going to try to come near to God, we have to do it in a way that our eyes are wide open to those around us. Open enough, not just to see the needs of our neighbor, but to taste their suffering. Every week we come to this table and we say to you, taste and see that the Lord is good. And we come and we taste and we see that the Lord is good. And in his goodness, he turns us around and invites us to taste and see the suffering of our neighbors. Let your heart be broken open and poured out just like the bread and the wine in the Eucharist. And as we do that, as we enable people to experience epiphany with us, remember what the prophet says, if you do away with the yoke, the clenched fist, the wicked word, if you give bread to the hungry and relief to the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your shadows become like noon. If we live like this, We will provide people with the opportunity to wonder about how good God actually is. Bishop Leslie Newbegin, he encourages us to live, to provoke questions for which the gospel is the answer. And if we learn how to do that, if we learn how to taste the suffering of our neighbors, they can learn to taste and to see that the Lord is good. Our lives are meant to make epiphany happen for other people so they can see God's goodness, so they can see the light of Christ. And what is the promise? Yahweh will always guide you. The prophet Isaiah says, how does God guide us? By making us aware of needs. Where does God guide us? To the needy. How can we be sure that our needs will be met? Remember, Yahweh will give you relief in desert places. God will satisfy our needs in the parched places here's what I think God is saying, that your life is meant to be a spring of water. It's meant to give relief to those who are in desert places, in parched places. And God will satisfy your needs. We trust that that's true. But only after you've gone to those who are in the parched place. As Christians, we're people who somehow find joy in the midst of suffering. We put our bodies in the place of brokenness, and it is there God promises to make us whole. We go into the desert, and there God promises to make us a spring of life for others. We trust that God's promises to us personally, to make us well, to give us joy, to give us fulfillment, to give us peace, only comes to us as we give ourselves to those who are not well, as we give ourselves to those who have no strength. Whatever it is that you need, it won't be met by you attending to your own interests, But turn your attention in the same direction that Christ's attention is turned. Find that neighbor who needs food or clothing or a visit or a rescue. And when you are giving your attention fully to them, without even realizing it, your thirst will be satisfied. And the same healing that is in God will be in you. And the same peace that God brings you will be yours to give. And the same grace that's in God will be in you. And we will be the body of Christ together. Amen.